Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, September 21st, we are studying Ezekiel chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. The Lord tells Ezekiel to prophesy against the mountains of Israel, the place where idolatry ran rampant on the high places throughout the history of the people of God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor John Busman. Pastor Busman serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Coleman, Alabama. Pastor Busman, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you again. As we get started this morning, Pastor Busman, let's talk context here for the prophet Ezekiel. What should we know about his ministry, what he's been preaching so far that'll help us into chapter 6 today? Okay, great. Uh, Ezekiel is a uh, priest. And he was among the first who were, uh, who was deported into Babylon. So the early chapters, of course, you have uh, the vision of, of God and then Ezekiel's call. And, and now we're getting into several chapters of, of judgment, uh, the, the siege of Jerusalem and the uh, prophecy that Jerusalem would be destroyed. And, of course, the prophets never never leave us wondering or questioning why this destruction is coming. And of course, in, in chapter six here, we hear of, of the idolatry that has run rampant and, and everything, of course, always comes back to idolatry. Uh, no matter what sin it is, it is always because we have uh, put our trust in something other than the Lord, our God. So that's what Ezekiel is, uh, is calling out here. Yeah, I mean, idolatry is going to be the big sin. And as you said, it really is the focal point for the prophets. I, I think sometimes we forget that, that you know, we think about the wickedness that existed in the people of Israel. And certainly the wickedness from a moral standpoint was terrible. In the previous chapter, the Ezekiel pointed out that you know, the people of Israel, they hadn't even acted according to the rules of the nations, that the pagans were even better than the people of Israel. But it always does come back to that sin of idolatry. That's where, where everything starts. Can you dig into that a little bit more for us, Pastor Busman? Why is that always the, what the prophets are saying, and why is idolatry the root cause of all these other sins? Sure. I, I'm, I'm glad you uh, brought that up. We do confess this as we memorize our catechism when we memorize the commandments um, uh, with the first commandment you shall have no other gods what does this mean we should fear love and trust in god above all things and every commandment that we learn after this as, as luther gives us the explanation he always begins with we should fear and love god so that always uh, causing us to remember that whatever commandment we break whether we misuse God's name or, or fail to remember the Sabbath or do not honor our father and mother, it's always because we have failed to um, to have God in the place of God. We decide that our will is, is better than his, that we want to do something else. So everything 
hinges on uh, that very, very first commandment that you shall have uh, no other gods. Old Testament prophets, you know, are always uh, condemning the people because they have, uh, you know, they're they're worshiping God, but their hearts are far from him. They're not taking care of the poor, the widow, the orphan, uh, any of those kinds of things. But it always, always, always comes back to their unrepentant idolatry. And that idolatry is going to be in sharp focus in Ezekiel chapter 6. We've got, in terms of the, the structure of this text, Pastor Busman, how would you how would you lay it out? We do see the first couple of, uh, of verses, uh, beginning with verse 2, after, after a brief introduction. Then it's divided up into uh, two, quote-unquote, words from God. We have uh, verses 2 through 10 set up as one word ending with, they shall know that I am the Lord. And then verse 11 starts off again with, thus says the Lord God. So this kind of second word that also ends with, then they will know that uh, that I am the Lord. So a couple of sections here within within the sixth chapter of Ezekiel. Let's go ahead and read then Ezekiel chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them, and say, You mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and the valleys, Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you, and I will destroy your high places. Your altars shall become desolate, and your incense altars shall be broken, and I will cast down your slain before your idols." And I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols, and I will scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you dwell, the cities shall be waste and the high places ruined, so that your altars will be waste and ruined, your idols broken and destroyed, your incense altars cut down, and your works wiped out. And the slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Yet I will leave some of you alive. When you have among the nations some who escape the sword, and when you are scattered through the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive, how I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me, and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. And they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed, for all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. Thus says the Lord God, Clap your hands and stamp your foot and say, Alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. He who is far off shall die of pestilence, and he who is near shall fall by the sword, and he who is left and is preserved shall die of famine. Thus I will spend my fury upon them. And you shall know that I am the Lord, when their slain lie among their idols around their altars on every high hill, on all the mountain tops, under every green tree, and under every leafy oak, wherever they offered pleasing aroma to all their idols. And I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land desolate and waste in all their dwelling places from the wilderness to Riblah. Then they will know that I am the Lord. That is Ezekiel chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. Pastor Busman, let's start with just that very first verse, which is easy to skip over because we hear it all the time in the prophets, but it's it's worth at least a moment's reflection. The word of the Lord came to me. Why is that an important thing to remember, not only for Ezekiel, but for all the prophets? 
the word of the Lord came to me uh, so significant, and especially as everything has been wrapped up with the book of the prophet Jeremiah, and you saw the distinction between Jeremiah and the false prophets in the same way, you know, this, this can be a challenging word from Ezekiel. It can be challenging because of, it, of its style, of the language that's used. But for Ezekiel to say the word of the Lord came to me, he's not making it up. It's not a random thing that he's just out uh, proclaiming and announcing in the streets. It is, it is the word of the Lord uh, that is coming to him, this word. Uh, of power, this word that we've seen create and destroy and also restore. Uh, so Ezekiel is speaking the very word that is coming to him, not his own thoughts, not what's on his mind, but it is the word of the Lord. And with Ezekiel particularly, we, we know from chapter 3 that at this point he's mute unless the word the word of the Lord comes to him. And so when, when Ezekiel speaks, we know that he's going to speak the word of the Lord because of that action prophecy that the Lord's given him that is still in play at this point. And so, again, that matter of true prophets, false prophets, really a big theme in Jeremiah. And certainly for Ezekiel, too, we even know in Jeremiah, part of the letter that he writes to the exiles in Babylon, which is where Ezekiel is, includes a warning against false prophets there. And so no matter where the people of God may find themselves listening to the true word of the Lord and not listening and rejecting that false word is always going to be a big part of what it means to be the people of God, to recognize the word of the Lord that is spoken and to believe that. And so Ezekiel's given that to speak, and he speaks faithfully, beginning in verse 2. We get that, that familiar title for Ezekiel that the Lord gives to him throughout the book, Son of Man. Any, any comments on that title that the Lord gives to Ezekiel, not only here, but throughout the book? An interesting title. You know, we, we tend to refer to Son of Man. We, we tend to think of, of Jesus, but, you know, here there, there is a distinction between, between God and man. You know, man is is fallen, uh, a constant reminder to Ezekiel who he is, where he comes from, son of man, son of Adam, uh, son of the son of the dust, right? Dust you are and, and to dust you shall return. And, and that that kind of image, the, the bones and all of this really carries throughout this text as well, that, that man is sinful and man will die and uh, you know, unfortunately, because these people had listened to these false prophets and because they did not repent, uh, now uh, some have already wound up in exile. Others will follow. And uh, the temple, not at this point yet, is destroyed. But because of their failure to to turn and to repent, uh, the temple would be would be destroyed in, in a few years to come. At this point in Ezekiel's ministry, we've seen him engage in a couple of action prophecies. He's built a little model of Jerusalem and laid siege to that model of Jerusalem. In the previous chapter, he was instructed to cut his hair, and what he did with that hair was part of his prophecy concerning the judgment that would come upon the people there in Jerusalem. In today's text, we don't have as as maybe vivid of a picture of Ezekiel's action prophecy, but it does at least seem that his posture and the direction that he faces plays a role in what he's preaching. So he says, the Lord says, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. What What's going on here as, as the Lord begins to tell Ezekiel what to do and say? All right, so while, while maybe not necessarily an action prophecy or 
or you know creating models or anything he it's still very much a quote unquote object lesson of sorts right he's setting his face toward it's not just Ezekiel's not simply standing someplace and, and generically preaching he, he's preaching toward specific things set turn your face toward uh, the mountains so not only it's not only Jerusalem here that's being condemned it's all of Israel that is receiving uh, condemnation for this unrepentant idolatry mm. very specific well, what's the significance of the mountains of Israel? Again, as you said, beyond just Jerusalem here, mountains of Israel. But in terms of you know the geography of Israel, the mountains of Israel, what's the significance of prophesying against them in particular? Right. So speaking, you know, generally to to all Israel, but even more specifically, and this image will will continue to to play out. But in thinking geographically, as you brought up. Babylon is is quite different from the land of, of God's people, the land of Israel in, in the terrain. You know, Babylon is quite flat. Uh, Israel, the land of Israel has, you know, rolling hills and valleys and all of these kinds of things, very high mountains in the north. So for people who have already been exiled in the early deportation, they will hear mountains and look out in Babylon and not, not see any. Mm. It, it causes a yearning for home. And, and this is also something that those who are still uh, in the land of Israel would hear. And, and it might not resonate with them yet necessarily because they can look out and, and see the mountains. They can hear the judgment, but it's, it won't create this kind of I miss home uh, for them until they are until they are actually gone. But this yearning that we will see uh, throughout, you hear this in in uh, the book of the prophet Isaiah and others that, and, and Ezekiel really, really, really plays this out throughout the, the later parts of this book, this yearning that there really is no place like home. I mean, Babylon could allow them to, uh, you know, kind of, you help my empire and we'll help you kind of thing. But when it comes down to it, they have no temple. They don't have their own homes. Uh, the vineyards that they planted, they're not enjoying. The houses that they built, they're not inhabiting. So this yearning for home, this remembrance of why they're not home, again, because of their idolatry. Um, so the mountains, the mountains can either carry this very, very heavy law, imagery yet we also see them in other places carrying this this very uh very beautiful gospel image of of restoration mm. but here here it's definitely a heavy law and uh destruction image for god's people right i mean i think the the place where i think maybe you can see some of that gospel imagery and even some of that yearning that you're talking about at least what comes to my mind right away would be psalm 121 I lift my eyes up to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. You see that that similar, you know, that's the, the maybe the emotion that would have been evoked by bringing up the mountains of Israel to the people of Israel there in exile, particularly in contrast to the flatness of the land. 
Now, in this case, though, these mountains are being prophesied against, and and particularly he brings up the the high places. So, what what's going on on these mountains in Israel that Ezekiel needs to preach against? So, there you're right. There in verse three, the the description of the landscape expands the mountains and the hills, the ravines and the valleys. So he's capturing the entire image. Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you, and I will destroy uh, your high places. So those high places that are mentioned were the spots that were used for shrines or altars. And a, a lot of the time that we see this image, it's dealing with idolatry. So as you bring up Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Uh, where does my help come from? In a way, you could kind of see that as lifting your eyes to the hills and seeing all these high places to these false gods who are completely incapable of helping. Mm. Right? What is the, you know, the true high place? And uh, of course, that will ultimately play itself out in the cross of uh, Jesus Christ on Golgotha. But there are a few instances in the Old Testament where these these places, these high places, are actually, you know, actually do have altars of altars of God. You know, I think about the distinction between uh, Elijah in the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal when they go up Mount Carmel. And the prophets of Baal, you know, they have their altar up there. But when it comes time for Ezekiel to offer the sacrifice, there had been an altar of God that he rebuilds, right? It had been been torn down. So he simply rebuilds uh, that altar there. So it's, it's clear when we talk about these high places that what was going on there at the time was not good. The altars of God were torn down. The altars of Baal, Asherah, whatever god or goddess were constructed and being sacrificed to uh, on these high places. Mm, Right. So generally speaking, the high places throughout the Old Testament are places of pagan worship. As you said, with the prophet Elijah, that's a good example of of a mountain where there is some true worship that happens. Ultimately, you know, in the Old Testament, the mountain that they should be looking to is Mount Zion, where the temple is. And as you said, of course, that's going to point us forward to the cross and to the the mountain where Jesus is is crucified. Uh, of course, you know the people of Israel. They, that's that's where the high places I think are are so dangerous because it, it becomes a almost like a an imitation, a cheap imitation of the true worship of God, which I suppose is is the only thing that that Satan can really do when it comes to to false worship. It can only be an imitation of of the truth, and it ends up being pretty pretty worthless as we see these these high places are, are places not only of the idolatrous worship but, but of all kinds of other evil that are attached with them and, and so this needs to be destroyed that's what's being preached against in in Ezekiel as a priest would have had particular interest in this he I don't know if he would have been born in the reign of King Josiah, probably so. And so he would have maybe been around for some of Josiah's reforms that didn't end up taking hold because they were abandoned rather quickly, as we heard Jeremiah preach about recently. So this reform needs to take place again. These altars need to be torn down. And and you make 
it's made very clear here that the Lord is the one who's going to do this. I, even I, will bring a sword. I will destroy. I will cast down. This is the Lord's action here. Yes, there's no, uh, it's not, not by chance. You know, God always will say what he's going to do beforehand. And this is another thing that, that sets him apart from the false gods of the day. And the people would again see this, especially when they get into Babylon with the false god Marduk and all of this, that all of these other gods are dependent upon the actions of the people. They're they're more reactive gods. So as these prophets, especially these exilic prophets, will speak, they want they they want you to be very, very clear that God will say what he's going to do beforehand before it happens so nobody can say oh that just that's just a coincidence you know it, it, it just it just kind of happened you know god's going to make very very clear that he's told you beforehand what's going to happen and again it's as a result of their unrepentant idolatry mm-hmm. because they had built these high places because they had um left them right we hear we hear of so many kings especially of the northern kingdom and they're they're long gone at this point but especially of the northern kingdom how it seems like they some of them were on the right track in the beginning but then it will say but they did not destroy the high places that were that had been built and of course that just leads to more and more idolatry Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the the chief sin of the northern kingdom for their kings is that they never get rid of those high places that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, built at the very beginning of that kingdom. And that continues to be the snare for the northern kingdom. And that, of course, you know, infiltrates into the southern kingdom as well, which is a part of what what Ezekiel is preaching here in chapter six. One of the the things that we need to to talk a little bit about, Pastor Busman, is there in verse four for the first time where the Lord says, as it's translated in the ESV, I will cast down your slain before your idols. And the image of the slain before the idols is plenty to talk about all by itself. But before we we go there, we need to talk about the, the Hebrew word that's translated in the ESV as idols. Now, we, I think, know what an idol is. We've been talking about idolatry already. But Ezekiel is much more graphic in the Hebrew word that he chooses there. So help us to to understand what Ezekiel, the, the point that he's trying to get across with the word that he chooses in Hebrew to describe idols, not only here in chapter 6, but many times in his book. You do start seeing this word over and over and over again. And again, it's one of the one of these things that has become, it's very sanitized in, in our English texts. And, you know, that's, that's okay, but it's another one of those things that maybe makes Ezekiel a little hard to read because there are several sections in Ezekiel that are just that you really that you really want to turn your eyes away from because it's graphic. Uh, it's it can it can become very sexualized at some points, and it's just not something, frankly, not something we want the kids to read maybe necessarily. And I know that's a that's a difficult thing to say because we're talking about the pages of the scriptures, but Ezekiel makes a significant distinction between the one true God and these false gods that, that have been, that have been set up. And this word idol 
carries with it uh, an extremely graphic term for, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, excrement. So he likens these false gods, these idols, to uh, stacks of excrement. And he uses that same word all the way through. I, I mean, don't know how much more you want to get Well, get I into think that, no, but... I I think that's a that's a that's about as as a helpful way to say it without going farther than we should. This is I think know, the people understand that's uh, right. you know, what we're what we're talking about right. and, and and it's there and and it is. I mean it, it is they are the pages of the scriptures. It is the word of the Lord, so we do have to deal with it, but you know we we also don't necessarily need to get in a little giggling fit about That's right. the way Ezekiel uses his language. Right. And you know, you you brought up earlier the event on Mount Carmel with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. What Ezekiel does here is not all that different than the way Elijah mocks the prophets of Baal. He there. does the same thing. He does the same thing. Right. Nothing new. Right. I mean it's it's a similar thing where, where Elijah will say, you know, maybe Baal he's he's in the bathroom. Right. I mean, so that's maybe right. maybe that's a one way to, to you know, it, we could say that I will cast down your slain before your gods of the bathroom. That's I mean, again, that's that's still probably too sanitized, but that's getting right. closer to the mockery that Ezekiel is is giving to these false gods. They're just the gods of of the bathroom. That's all they right. can be the gods of. Now, that's I mean. It. And, and I think just before we before we go beyond and, and keep talking here, but maybe just the fact that Ezekiel mocks these idols, I think, is significant. And, and we've we've said, you know, this is something the scriptures will do. It will it mocks idolatry. God's word mocks idolatry. I think. I mean, uh, and this is just one thought. You can add. I'd feel. I'd love to hear your thoughts as well, Pastor Busman. But the fact that that God will mock these idols is just another way of of reminding us they're not real. That you know, the fact that he can mock them shows they actually don't have any power. And I think so. Although we we certainly don't want to be vulgar, but we should take uh, I could say it's delight, or we should find comfort in the fact that God does mock idols because they are remind. That's a reminder that they're not real. We have the true God. That, that's right, and that we, you know, ultimately do the same thing. I mean, it would, uh, of course, in our uh, don't necessarily want to go off on this tangent, but in in a godless society, you know, I would say, I would say, well, who in the world would mock the one true God? Well, we see plenty of that today, but you know, for 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 you or for me or for for a Christian to even consider mocking the one true God. I mean, your listeners might even shudder at the thought and, and, and likely should, but when we're talking about Baal or Asherah or any of those that we know don't exist, it's like, exactly, you know, mock them. They, they don't exist. They cannot help you. And, and that's kind of where the text will, will take off in the next couple of verses as well. That's right. These these idols can be mocked because they can't do anything about it. And that's the point Ezekiel is going to make. We'll talk more about that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Ezekiel 6 with Pastor John Busman. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, September 21st. We are studying Ezekiel chapter 6, verses 1 to 14 with Pastor John Busman. He serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Coleman, Alabama. Pastor Busman, prior to the break, we were talking about Ezekiel's condemnation of the idols of the people of Israel. He uses a very graphic term there to mock them as completely powerless. And in verse 5, we really see how that plays out, and we see this throughout this text, that the dead bodies of the people of Israel are going to lay before these idols. How does that show the powerlessness of these so-called gods? So their unrepentance, of course, not only leads to idolatry, but leads to, to death. And if they wanted these false gods, uh, that's, that's what they're going to get, and their dead bodies are going to be laid before them. But in a time of most hopelessness, as, as the world would see when somebody is dead, these idols are completely helpless. They, you know, the goal of, of all things is the resurrection from the dead. And these idols are helpless in this. They can't raise from the dead. So these dead bodies uh, remain uh, dead bodies of the, uh, of the people of Israel and the bones right even before these altars that they would sacrifice to for whatever to try to please these gods for forgiveness or for whatever these gods cannot deliver it so these dead bodies become scattered bones uh, upon the ground so again not a very nice image so you know we can talk about the way Ezekiel talks about idols and all of this but it's not a you kind of imagine this in your in your mind it's not a not a pretty picture Mm. The, the idea of, you know, the laying down before these idols, in, in addition to, you know, that's just what a dead body does, I think that it also brings to mind the posture of worship. Oftentimes, in both in the Old and New Testament, when you see that someone worshipped the Lord or worshipped something, the, the word there is more akin to the actual posture of bowing down before a god. And so, I mean, you know, with, with here, before the idols, what do you have? Dead bodies. When you engage in the worship of a false god, you are left for dead, and, and the god can't do anything for you, which stands in great contrast to the worship of the one true god, who is the living god, as he is so often termed throughout the scriptures. What, what came to my mind in uh, part of this, as I was thinking through this in my own mind, was in Romans 12, where Paul talks about, you know, our spiritual worship or our, our rational service. He calls Christians a living sacrifice, that, that on, we worship the God who is living, and so that even as, as we worship him in a sacrificial way, we remain living. But when you worship an idol, all you can be is dead. It doesn't matter how much you prostrate yourself before that idol— you're just going to lay there on the ground as a dead person because that's what the idol is. The idol is dead. Right. Paul picks that language 
back up, I believe, in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says you were yeah. dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. You were you know, basically you know, the walking dead, walking around as though you were living, but, but dead because of your, uh, of your sin. That's right. That's right. Now, of course, I don't think we should pass by this without thinking forward into the book of Ezekiel a little bit. We, we are in that section prior to the fall of Jerusalem where the language of Ezekiel is pretty much all condemnation and judgment. But he will return to this image after Jerusalem has fallen when he's preaching to comfort the people. And, and I think to one of the more well-known chapters in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37. How does, how is Ezekiel going to transform this image later when it comes to the worship of the true God? Oh, it's it's one of my favorite images in Ezekiel. Uh, of course, I would. Uh, there may be something wrong with me if chapter six were my favorite image in Ezekiel, but, but chapter thirty-seven, uh, we hear of the Valley of Dry Bones, right? This this hopeless uh, Israel, because you, you'll hear in chapter ten the uh, the Lord departs. From, from the, the temple, the glory of the Lord departs and the temple is destroyed. And the hopelessness of these people as they are in Babylon, no temple, no home, no nothing. And Ezekiel beholds this field, this valley of bones, and they're, they're dry bones. They've been, they've been bones for a long time. Yet, what happens? Son of man, can these bones live? And well, I don't know. <laughs> so, well, Ezekiel, do your job and prophesy to these bones, and uh, the Spirit will come upon them, bone to bone, sinews and flesh, and all of this. And the bones come together. And he says, "This is the whole, uh, the whole army, the whole uh, host of my people." Mm-hmm. And they say that their hope was lost; they were clean cut off. But their hope is restored, not because of these false gods who can't do anything uh, but because of the one true god who can who can raise uh, raise from the dead now ezekiel will get to that right now he's preaching against the idolatry that's happening on the high places the mountains of israel and the the language continues to be a pretty explicit very direct vivid language what are some of the images that we see as the text continues into verses six and seven Uh, so verse six Wherever you dwell, the cities shall be laid waste and the high places ruined. So we've heard that the altars will be waste and be ruined. And then the very last phrase there, your works wiped out. This is the same phrase that we heard in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9 as God wipes out his creation by the waters of a flood. Of course, not a flood this time. We had the promise that he would not do that again. But this wiping out does bring up that imagery uh, of of the flood from all the way back. The judgment of God on the people because of their idolatry. And then in verse 7, we hear that purpose clause that comes out so often in the book of Ezekiel and more than once in this text you shall know that I am the Lord. The Lord is going to show himself to be the true God over and above these idols. He is the one true God because what he says will come to pass, uh, both on the basis of judgment and also on the basis of restoration. His word comes true all the time. 
Now, as the text continues into verse 8, we, we hear a theme that was very ever so slightly mentioned in the previous text in the matter of the hair. There's a few of those hairs that get tucked into the prophet's robe as a remnant. It's not emphasized at all. It's just mentioned in chapter 5. But here that remnant theme is brought out a little bit more clearly in verse 8. Help us into that theme of the remnant that Ezekiel begins to develop here. Right. Uh, Isaiah, again, brings this out probably the the most clear, but here this yet or but, right? It, it's, a, it's a word that's going to shift the text toward uh, gospel from law, yet I will leave some of you alive. So not everybody was an idolater. Um, some will be left alive. Again, just like with uh, the, the prophet Elijah when he ran into the cave. He said, look, there are yet 7,000 who have not bowed their, their knee to ba- knees to Baal. So there is always a remnant that, uh, that God has left, always a few who, who are faithful. And that starts to come out here. And, and it's kind of nice that it's not such a broad theme yet that, that a remnant, the promise of a remnant, uh, is basically a, a remnant itself in the text, a very small portion within the larger landscape of, of the sin that was going on. Mm. Well, and, and at this point, what is brought out about the remnant is, you know, you're just going to barely get away. You're going to escape, but you also are going to be scattered. So that theme of exile is there as well for this remnant. And and then the Lord says what they will remember as that remnant. And we get into, again, some of Ezekiel's very graphic language. What does Ezekiel begin to say in verses 9 and 10? No, you're right. Those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they were carried captive. So they're, they're not going to forget the Lord, their God. But the, the, <laughs> the sexual nature here uh, of, of these people, right? I mean, God speaks of his people as, as a, a bride to their bridegroom. And they have, they have simply forsaken that relationship and gone after another. So the, the go-to prophet here uh, is, is Hosea. Mm-hmm. And, you know, poor Hosea, his whole life is, is an object lesson. But, but this is how the relationship of God with his, with his people exists, that God is faithful as the bridegroom, yet his people go off. They go, uh, the word that is, that is used is whoring. Right? They go off in this, in this other uh, sexually deviant relationship with these uh, other gods, and he uses it uh, several times there. Uh, but it's a loathsome thing. The text says, "Yeah, that that image of uh, the relationship between the Lord and His people as a marriage, and their breaking of that relationship as." Adultery, that's going to be a theme that Ezekiel will explore in much more vivid graphic detail in a few chapters later in a couple of places as well. So that that language is familiar in the prophets, and Ezekiel certainly makes use of it. In verse 10, we hear a repeat again, they will know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. Now, on the one hand, that's I think that's pretty clear what the Lord is saying, but that 
the that the Lord says, I would do this evil to them may strike our ears as strange. What's going on here, Pastor Busman? Right. Does does God, quote unquote, do evil? And and I think a lot of times when things happen, either in the scriptures or in our own lives, we, we have to wrestle with this. And and a lot of times I think people will simply justify the actions of God and say, Well, God God allowed this to happen rather than seeing God as the actor of these things. I mean, who, for example, who in the book of Exodus goes through Egypt and uh, takes the life, the lives of the firstborn? Well, the text tells us that it's God who's, who, who's doing this. Is that evil or not? Well, for the people of Israel, it's, <laughs> it's salvific. Right. So to wrestle with this question, does God do evil? Does he allow evil? And then to actually kind of let these things in the scriptures speak for themselves and to uh, to not be afraid uh, to not feel like we always have to justify God in his own actions. He will punish idolatry to the point of death and and. Um, and there are the there are some who will be lost, and that's that's a very hard thing to come to terms with. Right, and I think I mean maybe one of the challenges for us is that word evil has a, a moral connotation to it sometimes. That that maybe we want to we sure should, we should be careful with that where where it says you know I would do this evil to them. It doesn't. It has a, it doesn't have a moral connotation as in but in the sense of he's going to punish them he's going to pour his wrath on them it is going to be experienced by them as an evil as a great suffering as wrath and and that's where I think we we do start to shy away from that language but where the scriptures speak this way we shouldn't as, as you said try to justify God but rather let God be God go with what the scriptures say about him hold this intention with verses say like James where we we know that you know God tempts no one we we hold that together with this verse but not run away from it rather you know let the scriptures speak and and as we've talked about several times on sharp iron through books like lamentations and the book of habakkuk where the lord you know is asked these questions by the prophet about his justice and his evil you know, letting language like this, I think, ultimately will drive us back to God as the only hope that we actually have when these things happen to us. Right. That's that's very well said. It's not evil uh, as being equivalent to sin. Right. So God is not somehow sinning or anything like this. He's simply, again, he's he said that he would punish idolatry he said these things would come to pass he's not you know he's he's not a he's not a parent like that, that threatens and then decides oh well i don't really feel like carrying out that punishment because my children won't like me anymore if i do um actions have consequences and he does carry out that judgment as god's people here in um the sixth century bc would would figure out very swiftly that's right. When the Lord says he will do something, he does do it. And that is true of his judgment here in Ezekiel chapter 6. As we move into verse 11, we come to that second word from the Lord. We have another, you know, thus says the Lord God. 
And then this matter of clapping hands, stamping the foot, how does that play into what Ezekiel is given to say here? Uh, the, 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 I think this is one of the times, and there, one of the times, there are numerous times where you know, people may disagree about what certain phrases mean in Ezekiel. Uh, but he uses this, this phrase of the clapping of the hands again around chapter 21 as a signal of the execution of the wrath of God. And going with clapping the hands is stomping the feet, right? So trampling something underfoot. So it's, it's an image of the wrath of God actually being carried out, right? Alas, all of these evil abominations. So again, just kind of what we said with, with verse 10, what God says, according to his wrath, if, I think we need to say this too, if the idolatry continues, right? God, God will never change his mind according to his gospel, (laughs) but he, you know, but he, but he will change his mind. We see him relenting of, of these things, relenting of disaster, saying Jonah, when people repent. So judgment is not necessarily the final word. There's a word of warning. You know, if you continue, this will happen in hopes that people will hear the word of the Lord and, uh, and, and turn and repent. Mm. Which is why the Lord sends the prophet in the first place that to, to speak that word of, of judgment so that the people would repent so that he would then turn from that judgment that he's spoken. And, and that's, I mean, that's, we definitely need to, to say that as well. Now, in this case, in Ezekiel 6, there is no repentance in view. And so the Lord is bringing the judgment. And in verse 12, I mean, you know, it doesn't matter if you're far off, if you're near, or if you make it through the first round, the Lord is going to find a way to get you, whether it's by pestilence, famine, or sword. I said those in the, the reverse order that Ezekiel lists them, but that's the the Lord is going to send those things, and his judgment will find his people one way or another. Right. There's no there's no place to go from, from the presence of God. And, you know, the people who were left in Jerusalem at this point can't point to the ones in Babylon and say, oh, they're, you know, they're getting the wrath of God. You know, they may be the ones who are far away, you know, they're the ones who are scattered already. The ones who are near are the ones who are still in and around Jerusalem who would, uh, a lot of them would be deported. What, uh, what year is this? This is around 593. So just in about seven years from then, the temple would be, would be destroyed. Uh, and they too uh, would, would fall by the sword at that point. And the ones who are left, because not everybody was deported, uh, but they shall die of, of famine, and that's uh, that, that's the worst. You know, just being being besieged, being surrounded, and, and starving, and, and dying of thirst, and, and all of this. So uh, there, there's no place to go for for those who are unrepentant. God's wrath comes comes to all of them. Uh, the matter of famine has come up a couple times in the book of Ezekiel already in the diet that he was given in chapter 4 and in mm-hmm. the matter of, of the cannibalism that's predicted in chapter 5 during that siege right. of Jerusalem. So the, the famine, again, is, as you think through the ways to die, and I think the book of Lamentations is, is where I recall this from, that 
that there Jeremiah says, you know, those who died by the sword were better off than those who died by famine. So yeah, of these right. of these ways to die, the famine is is certainly the most horrific, and we see oh, that. It's, it's awful. It's, it's it's more it's more than just dying because you're hungry, right? Right. Uh, they they do everything you could imagine to quench their thirst and to uh, satisfy their hunger. Now, in in verse thirteen. You have, again, we return to the people will know that the Lord is God. And again, this this image of the those who have died lying around the idols. And, and here, I mean, it's pretty comprehensive, the judgment that the Lord pictures for the places of idol worship in verse 13. So we're, we've kind of come full circle with the imagery of the, the high places and the landscape and everything. But Again, it is the fulfillment of this wrath that will lead the people to recognize that that uh, that Yahweh uh, that, that Yahweh is God, and again, His word will come to pass. It's when His word is seen as sure and certain that there is this recognition that Yahweh is God. And if we could circle all the way uh, to the beginning again with the image of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, there are a lot of similarities here. Where as soon as that sacrifice is zapped up with with fire all the water and everything those prophets of baal fall down and yahweh is god yahweh is god why because his wrath has been uh carried out and, and would continue to be carried out you know upon them so that's what is recognized that his word is sure in verse 14 the lord says i will stretch out my hand he says against them here we've seen the hand of the lord several times in the book of ezekiel the hand of the lord was upon him earlier here the lord it seems is using his hand not for good but for wrath and, and it could go either way right context will tell us god stretches out his hand in egypt for salvation right by an outstretched hand and a mighty arm he saves but at the same time, he saves his people, yet carries out his wrath upon the Egyptians. So is, is stretching out his hand a, a good or a bad thing? Here, it is a very uh, negative thing, but uh, but it, it is one of those phrases that we see in a couple of different ways throughout the scriptures. The Lord says he will make the land desolate and waste. These are images that we've seen throughout the book of Ezekiel already and that will continue to come up. And he says from the wilderness to Riblah, or there's also a note it could be Dibla in some Hebrew manuscripts. What's the what's the geography that's being pictured here? So the wilderness, we're, we're talking about basically from, from south to north. So Riblah is, is likely the, the, the correct uh, translation there. Uh, moving up north into Syria. So all the way through from from south all the way to the north. We would call this in the Old Testament when, when the uh, Hebrew writers do this, it's called a merism. It's from one extreme to the other and everything in between. Uh, we've heard of Rivla actually around the context of, of the exile and the years to come as well. Uh, it's where Josiah's son Jehoahaz, the next king who, who only reigned for a few months, he was imprisoned there at Riblah. And it was really, it, it was one of the moments that really marked the beginning of the end for the southern kingdom. So there, there are some, uh, some connections that can be made there uh, for the people. Nebuchadnezzar would have a fortress there. Uh, Zedekiah 
the king was was taken there to to watch his sons be killed so it's 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 not a nice place but mm. from from the wilderness from the south to the north and everything in between uh, um, is what the text is getting at and again for the purpose that the people know that the lord is god pastor buston exactly. we've got Got about three minutes here on the morning as we reflect on Ezekiel 6. Help us to summarize what's here, what should we take from this as Christians, and how does a a text like this that is full of judgment, how does it ultimately point us toward our Savior, Jesus Christ? As we hear all the way back with the Ten Commandments in uh, Exodus 19, as the people are gathered at Sinai moving into Exodus chapter 20 with the beginning of those commandments we learn that the lord our god is a jealous god it is he who created us and it is he who sustains us and gives us all good things he will not share his throne with any idols at all Um, and we see in this text his promise that his wrath is going to be carried out upon those idolaters uh, their bones will be scattered in front of the altars of the idols that they uh, worshipped to no end for them but destruction. But ultimately for them, ultimately too for us, as we lift up our eyes to the hills, we see that the wrath of God would ultimately be poured out uh, upon Jesus, who uh, in a very real sense was made the ultimate idolater in our place there on the cross on Mount Golgotha. That's where his wrath was carried out uh, for us so that our sins are forgiven when we uh, put other things on the throne and and fall down and worship them that we too may repent. As a result uh, of the forgiveness of sins that Jesus won for us, our bodies will not lie in front of uh, these altars. Our our bones will not lie strewn throughout uh, a barren wilderness. Instead, he will send and ask his son, son of man, can these bones live? And by his death, by his resurrection, the answer for us is a resounding yes. And to that, we can say thanks be to God. Pastor John Busman is pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Coleman, Alabama, helping us today with Ezekiel 6, verses 1 to 14. Pastor Busman, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much. God's peace be with all of you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel, comments on this series, we'd love to hear from you. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send up to a 60-second message to us. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.